you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Peter in chapter number two. First Peter in chapter number two. We're going to look together at verses 18 through 25. The last time that we were together in First Peter, our discussion was focused on verses 11 through 17. In those verses, the primary command that Peter issues is found in verse number 13, submit to every human authority and the subject, the focus is governing authority. So in essence, we were called upon in those verses to submit to governing authorities. Obviously, that kind of commandment generates a lot of conversation. And uh, most of the conversation that I've been engaged in since our last meeting in First Peter has been focused, as I would have, have expected, uh, on the qualifications or the exceptions, the limitations for such a commandment. And that's an appropriate conversation that needs to be had and some thought given to. There are certain lines that are drawn in the scripture. For instance, if a governing body orders or commands that you take steps, measures, or actions that violate the command of God, you have been called upon by God that you would honor the command of God as superior to the command of any governing authority or institution. The illustration for this is found in chapter 4 and verses 19 and 20 of the book of Acts. Peter and John arrested for preaching the message of the gospel. They are charged by their governing authorities that they would no longer preach Jesus raised from the dead. Peter and John answer whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, God has called and commanded that we would preach the message of the gospel and no governing body is going to stop us from doing what God has called us to do. Those kinds of qualifications, those kinds of limitations on these types of commands are the kind of things we need to be aware of and have conversation about. But, but the fact that all of our conversation and virtually all of our thoughts regarding that command drift in that direction is telling. Now here we are with another passage, verses 18 through 25, where submission to authority is the focal point. And if you're not careful, your mind is going to drift in the direction of the qualifications and or exceptions to this command, possible exceptions. And if you allow yourself to go there first, I'm not saying it's not a place you should visit. I'm just saying it's not the place you should visit first. If you go there first, you will escape the opportunity of allowing that the full weight of what Peter describes sink down into the marrow of your bones. And Peter is clear in our passage, this is, this is not just kind of a tag on to who we are as Christians, this strikes at the heart of the message of the gospel and the call of Jesus on our life that we would take up the cross and follow after him. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter 2 and verse number 18 and now join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse number 18. Household slaves, submit with all fear to your masters. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, mindful of God's will, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you sin and are punished, 
and you endure it. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He didn't commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You've been healed by his wounds. For you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Like last week's passage, the focal point of these verses is submission. And in next week's passage, within the context of the family, the focal point is submission. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, but also the mutual submission of each part of the family to the needs of others. In essence, esteem others more highly than yourself. This is a broader section of 1 Peter focused on the concept of submitting to authority, submitting to the needs, submitting to the interests, submitting to the well-being of others around us, even without concern for our own personal interests or needs. Peter here addresses a group of people referred to as household slaves. It's a specific category of slave in first century Rome, very much a part of the household itself. Slaves were such a part in their cultural experience of, of the operation of the home, the functioning and operation of the household, that you can't really address the house, you can't really address the family without addressing the role or the office of the household slave. Now, in just the way that our minds are tempted to wonder to scandalous and controversial component parts of the command to obey governing authorities, the same is true of various times when the Bible addresses the institution of slavery. Here's what I'll say to sort of allay those concerns. Peter in no way affirms or is in agreement with the institution of slavery. And often when we come to passages like this, we try to draw lines of distinction between slavery as it was observed in the early history of the United States and slavery as it was observed in the Roman Empire. And there are some distinctions. Perhaps the most obvious distinction is that race is not a component part of slavery in the Roman Empire in the same way it was in early United States history. But there are no circumstances under which, there are no circumstances under which it is ethical, appropriate, good, or moral that one human being be sold under bondage to another. Peter is not affirming the institution of slavery. He's simply speaking in to the reality of first century Asia Minor. All over Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, all over those Roman provinces, there were households comprised not just of mothers and fathers, husbands and wives and children, but also of household slaves. And it is important, it was important then, and it is important now, that regardless of our station in life, wherever we find ourselves, that we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
So Paul addresses the institution of slavery, specifically those who are themselves enslaved in verse 18. Household slaves, submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. Peter qualifies what he commands, submit to your masters with all fear, but goes on to say not only to those who are good, but also those who are cruel. See, Peter knows the human psyche the way we know the human psyche. That if you only say submit to your masters in all fear, someone in the congregation is going to raise a hand and say, but what of those cruel masters who mistreat those in service to them? So Peter makes more of a blanket statement. Submit to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good, but also to the cruel. Now, if you have an exclusively earthly perspective, this will not be palatable to you. In other words, this is a bitter, jagged gospel pill that you just will not be able to choke down. If your existence is bound up in the idea that you're going to find satisfaction and fulfillment and comfort and joy and peace in this life, you're going to be gravely disappointed and unable to choke down what Peter is dishing out in this passage. But if as our Savior you have entrusted your soul to the just judge of heaven and earth, and you are laboring and straining and striving and living, not for what this earthly experience can offer, but for what awaits us in heaven. This is no hill for that kind of stepper. Peter says, submit yourselves with fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. For centuries and even millennia, Christians have drawn from passages like this, the kind of principles that have compelled us to demonstrate good work ethic in the workforce. To be the first ones there and the last ones to leave. And to do what we do, whatever we set our hand to do, with a spirit of excellence. Whether our employers or supervisors are good or cruel, we do what we do not as unto man, but as unto the Lord, in that he might be greatly glorified by our every endeavor. And certainly that's an appropriate application to draw from these verses. Verse 19 and 20 continues on with this idea of bearing under the cruel treatment of masters or bearing under unjust suffering in general. Verse 19 says, for it brings favor if, mindful of God's will, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. If in the pursuit of performing God's will, if the goal of your life is to do God's will, if the focus of your day is to do God's will and the performance of God's will brings unjust suffering into your life, that unjust suffering is attended by the favor of God on you. God looks with a glad heart upon your willingness to, to remain faithful and steadfast even under that kind of duress. In verse 20, he says, for what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. There are times when the proverb proves itself true. No good deed goes unpunished. 
And the reality is the more you open yourself up, the more you make yourself vulnerable to, susceptible to mistreatment, being taken advantage of, that's part and parcel of serving others. A part of serving others is opening yourself up to mistreatment, to being abused in some kind of way. There are two kinds of outcomes that come from that experience. Either you will grow bitter and ambivalent toward the needs of those around you, or you will be mindful of the favor of God on those who make themselves vulnerable in service to the least of these and persevere to the end in your want to do what is good. Peter reminds us that suffering unjustly brings the favor of God. Peter reminds us that suffering for doing what is right brings the favor of God. It's verse 21 where things get really difficult. Because it's in verse 21 that Peter says, if you want an example, this is, again, it's where rubber meets the road. It's not just that he says, obey or submit to your masters, the good ones and the bad ones. He says, do it like Jesus. It's like Ephesians 5. I always say this of Ephesians 5, where Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If he just said, love your wife, we can manage that. But he said, love your wife like Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the depth of love that God calls the husband to for his wife. And it's not just that the Bible says that we submit to our masters, the good ones and the bad ones. It's that the Bible says, submit to your masters like Jesus submitted to his. You know, most of the questions that I fielded, and they've been good, conversations have been positive about what it means to submit to governing authorities, are, are hypotheticals or real-life situations that are putting to practice that commandment with all of the variables that life has to offer. That's where it gets tricky, right? It's one thing to say in isolation, insulated from the world, submit to governing authorities or submit to your masters. It's another to make application of these principles in the, in the messy circumstances of life where there can be any number of variables that contribute to the final decision the Christian makes led by, we hope, led by the Holy Spirit. Here we don't have to wonder. Because Jesus models for us not only what it looks like to submit to cruel masters, but also what it looks like to submit to governing authorities. Verse 21 says this, listen, for you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Listen, when Jesus said, take up the cross and follow after me, Peter, in these verses, as well as any passage in the New Testament, captures the essence of what Jesus intends by that statement. I go back to that verse again and again because I think it is one of the most fundamentally misunderstood verses in all of the New Testament. No one talks tongue-in-cheek or uses the cross language as a joke in the first century. This is not bearing with a bad Monday or a cantankerous mother-in-law. This, this is about embracing the prospect of death, following in the footsteps of the one who bled and died for us, 
who subjected himself willingly to an unjust system, who was punished unto death for doing what is right, and he invites us to follow in his steps. Peter says, for you were called to this. In other words, this is not an addendum, an attachment, an add-on. This concept strikes at the very heart of the message of the gospel. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you should follow in his steps. I want to remind you again, he's addressing household slaves. I've read a number of works this past week that dealt with, that talked about the percentage of the early church that was Slaves in some form or fashion, some class of slaves, whether they were assigned to agricultural work or they were assigned to some, um, some type of manufacturing or they were household slaves, as in the case of, of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 18. There are some that suggest that there are certain times in the first century church when even a majority of the membership of the church universal was, were slaves or at least former slaves, which makes great sense given what we find in the New Testament. In a number of the Apostle Paul's letters, here in a writing from the Apostle Peter, there are direct references to the institution of slavery and how the church is to respond, whether they find themselves as masters, which seems to be a very rare occurrence, or as actual slaves within that institution, which seems to be far more common. Even in those letters that do not address the institution of slavery, the language of slavery is used again and again and again, which would suggest this was terminology, this was a phenomenon in culture that everyone would have been exposed to and understood full well. Paul refers to himself as a slave of God. He had been freed from sin, but had now become a slave of God. For the slave, the interest is not in what he desires perhaps to do on a given day, but on what the master has ordered. When the master says, go, the slave goes. When the master says, do, the slave does. And so it is to be with the people of God. We have been liberated from our sin, redeemed in every sense of the word, but we have become subjects under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just slaves, not just servants, but sons in the very house of God. The focus of addressing the institution of slavery here is to say to those slaves within the house, don't do anything within that household that would cause others to recoil at Christianity or the message of the gospel. It seems that the scenario was like this. Within a Roman culture, only now being exposed to the gospel, there were many who were likely to assess the credibility of the gospel on the basis of how it influenced or impacted the house or the household. In other words, they would determine the merit of the message of the gospel on the basis of the way it influenced the home. Even in the debauchery of the Roman Empire, there was the understanding that the foundational element of society was itself the household. And so Peter is speaking into that and saying, listen, even in this unjust system, even treated cruelly, Make sure that you don't do anything that would bring harm or would create a dismissive spirit toward the message of the gospel. 
Don't do anything wherever you find yourself in life that would be a step back for the advancement of the kingdom. He's essentially saying to these slaves, prioritize the salvation of others and the advancement of the kingdom even over your own personal freedom. And the example for this kind of priority is found in none other than Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't have to think or look to hypothetical situations or even sort through all the variables of life to see some really practical ways this works itself out. Jesus is himself the answer. We have examples, we have better than hypotheticals in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Peter is working here in verses 21 through 25 with Isaiah 53. The time in the growth of the church, the advancement of the kingdom, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not as widely circulated as they are, or as neatly packaged as they are today in the copy of the Bible that you hold in your hand or access on your smart device. But everyone had Isaiah, or as I like to call it, the gospel according to Isaiah. And it seems that in the early church, they may have even committed to memory Isaiah 53, which speaks so powerfully to what Christ would do in his earthly ministry. A prophecy fulfilled in perfection in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus becomes for us the example. And so Isaiah 53 is cited at a number of points along the way. In verse 22, for example, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter is verifying for us that if there's ever been a person, if there's ever been a human being in the history of mankind who suffered unjustly, it was Jesus. Usually when Christians suffer, even when it's persecution, there are always attending factors it's not exclusively their devotion to Jesus. There are other ancillary issues that come along with that. Someone coming out of the second service made reference to a specific issue that they were aware of where in a South Asian community, many churches were burned and the response was, well, the Hindus are just persecuting Christians. The reality was in the days leading up to the burning of those church buildings, Christians were, from the perspective of the Hindus, disrespecting a festival season, so they decided to go through town and burn down all the churches. Now, it doesn't mean they were justified in any way, but it does speak to the complexity of persecution and suffering. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough to bring about persecution and hardship, we don't have to add our prickly personalities and misrepresentations of the gospel to the equation. But Jesus was a rare, in fact, a unique exception. And then there are no attending variables. There are no circumstances or background in which Jesus has done anything that would be deserving of the treatment that he would ultimately undergo. He did not sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That is an experience exclusive to Jesus. So in this sense, he's the only suitable example. Without sin, perfect in his righteousness. And yet he would undergo the suffering that he endured. Verse 23 tells us of what he endured and how he responded. When he was reviled or when he was insulted, when he was accused, he did not revile in return. When they said the vile things that they said to our Savior, he did not respond with accusation. He did not respond as he was 
treated. He did not in that moment seek retribution. Isaiah 53 and verse 7, the Bible says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears. He did not open his mouth. If you go back to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and look at Jesus as he undergoes a trial under Annas, and Caiaphas, and Pilate, and Herod, he is virtually silent throughout. Except in Luke's Gospel, where the Bible tells us that he pauses to comfort the daughters of Jerusalem, to encourage them on his way to the cross. And a brief and somewhat private exchange between himself and Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, where he informs Pilate, you would have no authority over me except it were given you from above. Jesus is virtually silent. He scarcely speaks except to affirm the accusation against him that he is indeed the Messiah. Peter trained us in last week's passage that we don't have to respond to every accusation. You're not obligated to speak defensively to every accusation or every insult that is cast your way. In fact, his methodology for slipping the accusation is that we would silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is right, head down, hand to plow, persevering in the work of Jesus. Time and truth are on our side. Certainly we see that modeled in the ministry of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And Peter continues, when he was suffering, which implies physical suffering, when he was undergoing scourging, when he bore the crown of thorns, when the nails were in his hands and his feet, when, when positioned on the cross, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Peter says when he suffered, he didn't threaten or retaliate. Think for a moment about who's writing here. Under the inspiration of God's spirit, it's Peter. And Peter learned this lesson in the laboratory of life. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When Judas led a Roman garrison out to apprehend Jesus. To carry him away for the trial that would ultimately result in his crucifixion. Peter had just been awakened by Jesus for the third time. Jesus had gone into the garden to pray, Lord, if there's a way, let this bitter cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Just feet away, Peter, James, and John couldn't find it in themselves to remain awake. But the third time that Jesus woke them up, they saw approaching Judas and this band of Roman soldiers. And as they drew near, there was a soldier near the front named Malchus. The Gospels identify him as a Roman soldier named Malchus. Peter does what most men in the South would do. I know us all well enough to know. And he draws a sword and he goes at the head of that soldier, barely missing and cutting off his ear. Peter, Jesus rather says to Peter, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by a sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus, he, he could have retaliated in that moment. Understand, he bears the power. And yet his instruction to Peter was to put away his sword. Jesus informs him, I could have dispatched 12 legions of angels. 
Perhaps the greatest demonstration of the power of Jesus is the restraint that he shows in that moment, in the hour of his execution, under the suffering of scourging, nails in his hands and feet, that he doesn't dispatch 12 legions of angels, that he doesn't bring immediate judgment against his accusers and his executioners. This is the great demonstration of the power of our Lord, that although he could, he did not for the salvation of his people. Are y'all with me? There is the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and others who sought to take the message of the gospel to a tribe of Indians who until then had no exposure to the message of the gospel. And they died just after landing there by spear. They were speared to death on the shores where they had just moments prior landed. And they say that they died there with guns at their side, still on their hip. Because as they traveled there, they'd made the decision among themselves that since they were prepared to meet Jesus through the gospel, it would be better that they themselves would perish than those who never had opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. Now listen, I'll concede here that there are exceptions to that kind of principle. Listen, there just are exceptions to that kind of principle. And there are times when our responsibility, not just an exception, but an outright responsibility, is to defend on the basis of the sanctity of life, human life, especially those under our protection. For instance, you husbands and fathers, have an expressed obligation from God that you would provide for the protection of your wife and the children God has given under your care. I'll be as honest as to say if someone comes at my family, I'm going to do more than draw a sword. We're going to get more nears before it's all over with. There are certain times when there are very real exceptions to that kind of principle. But what I can say to you concretely without exception, is that the default position of our heart ought to be to esteem others and their well-being more highly than our own, rather than the default being one of defensiveness, always looking for an occasion to demonstrate the power that may have been afforded unto us. Our posture, our default position ought to be one of tenderness and care and kindness and grace. One willing to sacrifice our comforts and well-being for the good of others. That's how it ought to look. With these momentary blips of exceptional seasons when we're called upon to protect and provide for the safety of those under our care. Or maybe even in unique circumstances, our own. Far more often, the default is defensiveness with these rare, exceptional moments where we put the well-being of others even before our own. And here's what I want you to note. The priority of Jesus' life was the salvation of his people and the building of his kingdom even over his own physical life. And if that's a paradigm, if if that's the way priorities look for Jesus, surely they're good enough for us. We ought to, listen, we ought to prioritize the advancement of the kingdom and the well-being of others even over ourselves. Look at verse 24. 
he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. This is what he does at the cross. Our sin is carried away. The punishment for our sin is paid by Jesus at the cross in order that we might receive the gift of his righteousness. Peter goes on quoting Isaiah 53, you have been healed by his wounds. Wounds received as an unjust punishment in an unjust system. In, in, a, in a court, in findings that were altogether immoral, wrong, evil, unjust. And yet Jesus willfully submits himself to an unjust system, prioritizing our salvation and our well-being even over his own physical life. Y'all tracking with me? Now, how in the world, why in the world would anybody do this? Why? There are two reasons. One, because the game is rigged and we've already won. Je Jesus, for the joy set before him, endures the cross, but three days later, he takes up his body again. You, you may persevere through suffering and hardship. You may be called upon to submit yourself to unjust judgments in unjust systems. It might even, under strained circumstances, cost you your comfort and even your life. But you get it back in the end. One day, this body, listen, Jesus bled and died for us. Wounds suffered under an unjust system. Willfully submitting himself to unjust findings are the mechanism for our salvation in the eyes of our God. And Christ has called us to take up the cross, to follow after him, to come after Jesus in his very footsteps, that we would forego our comforts for the well-being of others and the advancement of his kingdom. This is what he's called us to do. But we don't fret over these things because the game is rigged. We get the life we lay down back again in the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't have a heavenly perspective, this will not work for you. This will not fit it doesn't accord well with worldly ambitions. But if your focus, if your gaze is fixed on Jesus and what awaits us in Christ, why in the world would we not lay this life down to gain it back eternally? There, there's, a, there's a second reason anyone would do this, suffer unjustly. Not only because the game is rigged and we get this life back, but because we acknowledge that a good and sovereign God is on the throne and he always does what is right. Look back to verse 23. We skipped this little phrase, but it's good. He, he was reviled. He did not revile in return. He was suffering. He did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The language of faith and trust are virtually inseparable in the New Testament. In fact, there are times when the same word is translated trust as is translated elsewhere as faith. There's some degree of inconsistency about the way those are translated in different contexts. 
connected to the idea of having faith in God is the idea of trusting in God. It's the kind of terminology that we use so much in inviting people to faith, I'm not sure that we give great thought to what it means for us anymore. We have this phenomenon, these experiences of people who come to faith and things are going pretty smooth and they would confess faith or profess faith, but then the hardship comes and the true nature of that faith is revealed and they cannot trust the hand of God because they cannot see how this will result for their good or his glory, and so confidence quickly fades. Having faith in God is having trust in God that even when we can't see his hand or trace the work of it, that we are resting quietly and confidently in the reality that he is a just judge who always does what is right. Frankly, there are times in life when I cannot for the life of me understand why God would do what he does in a given moment. Why would such grief be visited on an individual or a family? Why is it that this scenario couldn't turn just a bit and the outcome be glorious? There, there are times when I think, Lord, if, if you just let me take control of this situation for a minute, I think I got a pretty good plan. This can work out for everyone. Even when we can't see his hand, he is the just judge of heaven and earth, worthy of our trust. You know, I think, I think there are times when God grants us those mountaintop feelings or experiences to embolden our faith. But more times than not, it's just the mundane of life. And then we get hit in the face with suffering and hardship. And if, and if, the foundations aren't secure, if the gospel isn't firmly established in our heart, it's really easy to forget that we live and breathe and have our existence under the watchful eye of an all-sovereign God who always does what is right, even when it feels so wrong. The reason that you can gladly suffer unjustly, even for doing what is right, is number one, because the game is rigged. And by faith in Jesus, we get this life back on the back end far better than it might have ever been experienced in the here and now. And that even though we find ourselves subject to unjust systems and unjust treatment, there is an all-watchful God on the throne of heaven who always does what is right, nothing has escaped his attention. And there isn't one iota of our life that falls outside the realm of his jurisdiction. Aren't you glad for that? Are you resting in that? The invitation of our passage is that we would entrust our souls to the just judge of heaven who always does what is right. That we would not only believe in the finished work of Jesus, that without sin Christ died in our place, that he becomes our substitute, buried and raised from the dead on the third day. Not only that we would believe in what he's done in times past, but that we would believe in what he's doing in the present and what he will do in the future. That just as he saved us in times past, he sustains us in this moment. And the day is coming when he comes to cleanse and claim his church forevermore. 
Entrust your soul to Jesus. Believe on him. Entrust your soul to the just judge of heaven. He always does what is right. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth for these verses. Lord, what we're trained to do in these passages is so countercultural. This cuts against the grain of what we're indoctrinated to do and to be in this world. God, it's only by your help that we can embrace this attitude we find in Christ, being in the form of God, not counting equality with God as something to be grasped for, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, subjecting himself to an unjust system, even to the point of death. This is the kind of thing we don't have it in us on our own to do. And so we ask for the indwelling power and presence of your Holy Spirit. That you would enable in us what is beyond the natural man's ability. I, I pray God that you would help us. Whatever station in life we find ourselves. That we'd never do anything that would compromise the advancement of the gospel or create roadblocks for those who might otherwise come to faith. Help us in every realm of life to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. God, where we fail in this regard, forgive us of our sin. Lord, I pray that as we enter into a time of invitation and commitment, that you would draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself, that you'd save some in these moments. I pray that the radical countercultural nature of what we've been called upon to do in this passage would resonate with those here who are far off, that they could see the stark contrast in the world around them and who you've called us to be in the gospel. God, I pray that the message of the gospel, that repentance and faith would be understood and made clear that, that all would know. That we need but call on the name of Jesus to find grace and mercy full and free. We ask, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd call many to yourself. Build your kingdom even as you build this church. And may Christ receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.